Hey, everybody. Welcome to Friday the 13th, the series. I'm your producer, Robert. And I'm your host, Hill Street. And after a complete, spoiler-filled recap of the episode, we are going to discuss the show you either just learned existed or always wondered how it existed. We promise the answers will be few and far between, because we're just here to have some goofity fun exploring a show that, despite or possibly even because of its faults, isn't good and isn't so bad it's good, but is still somehow oddly charming. Let's dive in, shall we? Are you speeding? I'm speeding like a whore out of... Uh, where would a whore speed out of? Uh, <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> wasn't prepared to follow through. <laughs> okay. Full disclosure, time of recording, I've seen the first four episodes of the series, but had only seen the first two when I wrote the script. Hill Street, on the other hand, has only ever seen the very first episode. She only received the script a few minutes ago, looked over it a couple times, and is now going to heroically read through it almost cold for your listening pleasure. Hill Street, whenever you're ready, take it away. So you've decided to make a network television series based on a film property about a summer camp serial killer. How best to begin? Well, the opening credit sequence is a perfect... micro... <laughs> well, that didn't take long. Gotcha. Right out of the gate. <laughs> I read through it and I didn't think about the fact that I didn't know how to pronounce that. Microcosm? Just checking? Yeah. To quote James Rolfe, talk about a beginner's trap. They sure nailed it. <laughs> yes. Yes, microcosm. Okay. I'm going to just run that back, you know? So, you've decided to make a network television series based on a film property about a summer camp serial killer. How best to begin? Well, the opening credit sequence is a perfect microcosm of the show. Low budget, just plain wrong but strangely endearing despite or possibly even for these reasons. We begin by squeezing through a keyhole into an antique store, but not the same antique store set used for the rest of the show. Oh no. Ironically, this one is better lit, actually allowing us to see some of the objects. The camera weaves through and lands on what I'm guessing might be an old timey candy jar before the words Friday the 13th materialize as if etched into it. If you're expecting the words, the series, to appear next, nope, that would be cool. But instead, the jar explodes, and the words, Friday the 13th, reappear in the exact same font, but they're now neon orange. Then the words, the series, appear in neon green, leaving you less certain if you're about to watch a horror show about haunted antiques, and more certain you're about to watch the Garfield Halloween special, or maybe an episode of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Despite being done on a budget, all the technical elements are there, but it just does not set the proper tone. All that craft is wasted, making an opening sequence that would be great for a kid's show like Goosebumps or Are You Afraid of the Dark, but in this humble narrator's opinion, is all wrong for a show in which a girl uses the hand of a Victorian doll to graphically slit a man's throat. After a fade-out, we learn episode one is called The Inheritance, and with the very first shot, we already get another example of technical proficiency actually undermining the intention of the show. Most of the episode's budget probably went to this crane shot in artificial rain, which looks impressive, but shows us that the antique store at the center of the show is located in a bowery for some reason, between, I'm guessing, a textile mill and a Labatt blue bottling facility. <laughs> well done. Because, <laughs> you know, after a long day operating an industrial loom, I like to go antiquing. <laughs> can you do that with a Boston accent? I can do it with a Southern accent. I don't think I can do Boston. Okay, let's hear it. Because, you know, after a long day operating an industrial loom, I like to go antiquing. 
so bad. <laughs> Molto bella. <laughs> Filmmaking. Whoop. Let's try that again. Filmmaking rule 37. Don't try to make Canada look scary. They are like the nicest people. Like Canadians are just so freaking nice. I don't know how they'd be scary. Unfortunately, they probably would have been better off with a less is more approach of just showing us a tight, static, establishing shot. Tangential point of order. Why they choose to make a stunt person ride a motorcycle in the rain as one of the two incidental vehicles in this opening shot is something I would give anything to have an answer to. I have to say, I love how much this bothers you. <laughs> the rain with the motorcycle shot, it bothers you so much and it just kills me. It keeps me up at night. Why? I, I don't know. I don't know why they did that to that man. I seriously wonder, did they pay a stunt person extra money to do it? Or was it more like someone on the crew was like, oh, hey, this is my chance for people to see me ride a motorcycle. Like I can tell my friend, like, oh, yeah, that's me riding a motorcycle. I'll look so cool. But they're just like, they, they, they so didn't care that it's on screen for literally about two seconds and then is out of frame. And they were like, well, that's going to cost us a lot in hazard pay. And he's like, it's okay. The show's going to be a huge success. We can afford it, you know? We can't afford two vehicles. We can afford a vehicle and a half. There you go. Another option is it happened to be raining. And they were like, well, we had this motorcycle written in. We can't take it out. Or you can't lose the motorcycle. The motorcycle's your heart. Yeah. But I digress. Filmmaking rule 37. Don't try to make Canada look scary. Unfortunately, they probably would... Oh, did I go back too far? I did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're down to uh, once once the vehicles pass. Thank you. Um, once the vehicles pass, we meet the Sims. No relation. Who make the obvious choice to wade directly through the children's swimming pool-sized puddle along the curb to meet refuge in the store. To seek refuge... Okay. I'm gonna try this again. I can read. Once the vehicles pass, we meet the Sims. No relation. Who make the obvious choice to wade... Oh my god, I'm sorry. <laughs> I could do it. Once the vehicles pass, we meet the Sims, no relation, who make the obvious choice to wade directly through the children's sw swimming pool size puddle along the curb. To see this is like a tongue twister. Go ahead, say it. Who wrote this? You did. No, no, no. That's the thing every, you know, every actor on set is like. Oh, yeah. Who wrote this? Yeah. Oh, I get it. I get it. Something my actors used to tease me with when I was directing this or that. Anytime an actor stumbled on any line, I'd be like, oh, who wrote this thing? Am I right? <laughs> it is. It is a tongue twister. Once the vehicles pass, we meet the Sims, no relation, who make the obvious choice to wade directly through the children's swimming pool size puddle along the curb to seek refuge in the store. Guess the factories were done churning out Canadian tuxedos for the day. <laughs> I don't blame the actors, as I'm guessing the conversation with the director was something like, I'm on board. I'm just having trouble justifying why my character would walk through the puddle. You know, that's valid, though, but... Yeah, I've spent enough time around actors. I know how they think. Yeah. Like, why would their character do that? It doesn't make sense, but... Total aside, uh, Hill Street, do you know what a Canadian tuxedo is? No. It's when you wear all denim. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I saw that on America's Next Top Model. Really? Okay. Might be too much of a diversion now, but tell me later the context of that. I am fascinated. Will do. Well, brave those rapids they do to take a chance on an antique store that's just as dark as every other closed business on the street. Welcome to Louis Vendredi's Antique Store. Vendredi being French for Friday. Don't you know? Don't you know? I should probably chime in real quick here. Uh, note from the editor. So that's uh, Louis Vendredi. My bad, my bad. Welcome to Louis Vendredi's Antique Store. Vendredi being French for Friday. Don't you know? Not sure if that's a tip of the hat to Canada's French-speaking population or not. 
Inside, Louis Vondretti, a.k.a. Uncle Louis, seems a bit flustered when Mr. and Mrs. Sim enter with their daughter, Mary. And uh, again, just editor's note uh, for the folks at home, that's Vondretti. Did I say Vondretti again? Yes, twice. Just wants to be that for me. Hey, Hill Street, how come you don't speak with your accent no more? <laughs> Inside, Louis Vondretti, a.k.a. Uncle Louis, seems a bit flustered when Mr. and Mrs. Sim enter with their daughter, Mary, who simultaneously makes... And breaks the episode. The actress who plays Mary is a whole side story we'll get into later, but she's fantastic. The problem is, Mary is an absolute psychopath, but they aren't telling an evil kid story. They're telling a haunted doll story. So they have a psychotic child find a haunted doll. On paper, that sounds amazing, but that's not the story they were telling. So at no point does the story acknowledge what a little Norman Bates Mary actually is, and you, the viewer, are left wondering if you're the crazy one. That's very well said. Mary spots Vita, the episode's haunted doll, and the design is actually kind of interesting in that it's almost monochromatic. Mary sneaks outside with Vita, where the viewer's grip on reality is pushed to the limit. The number of times I've rewatched this scene to confirm what I actually saw are borderline criminal. First, I thought it was some side alley because there wasn't rain, but there are two pedophiles working on a car that wasn't present moments ago. Then I realized it is, in fact, the street we just saw, but then where did the rain go? Then it confirmed there's not only lightning and thunder, but for a split second we see the rain coming down in the foreground before the camera dollies away, but somehow none of the three characters are getting wet. Maybe Mary is under an awning, but what could possibly be covering the guys in the street? We saw that whole street. There's nothing there. It is madness. The show is actively gaslighting us, taking only half the steps necessary to convey rain. It's a masterclass in Lynchian storytelling. Yeah, this scene is probably takes the cake for the most bizarre in this episode which is saying something it's just like when it happened when i watched it the first time i was like did i just imagine that it was just so strange because it you couldn't figure out where you were where they were what was happening it's so i'll I'll keep reading it but it's just so you feel like you must understand it because there isn't that much going on but then after the fact you're like but but something wasn't right and i can't put my finger on yeah it's like, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's bizarre. Also, just, I know this is like a common theme in this show, but this little girl, I mean, how old do you think she is? Like six? Um, I mean, I'm terrible with ages. I, I guess just off the top of my head, I would have said more like nine, but I don't know. I'm guessing, let's, let's meet in the middle here and say she's like seven or eight. Deal. And her parents just are not remotely watching her. Like she goes outside and I don't know if I haven't read this part yet, but she comes back and they're completely unaware that she was gone for a while. It's just, it's, it's all so strange. Regardless of this being the street, probably, I don't trust any of my senses anymore. I'm going to go with my first impression and just say that Mary steps out into Pedo Alley. Probably just to mess with us and make us think the show actually knows what it's doing and we're insane. But we get a nice dolly move that follows Mary probably darting to the nearest awning and ends with her framed by two guys working on a car. It's a genuinely nice composition, but it's so well composed and draws the eye so clearly to Mary that, wow, you know, never side with the pedophiles, but it's almost reads like she's putting herself out there as bait. Because after she pulls Vita's string and listens to her talk, these weirdos approach her and she's not only not afraid, she straight up warns them, you better leave us alone. Vita tells her, you can have anything you want, Mary. More like, you can have anything you want, Mary. And hisses like a cat. <laughs> and then Mary swings Vita at the nearest creep, slits his throat open, 
presumably with Vita's hand. Despite the minuscule budget, in fact, this was on network TV, they actually take the time to show the slash neck. Now, it's entirely possible you might have a different conclusion about what happened in this moment because nothing makes sense, but I think it's perfectly clear Vita is talking, but not influencing Mary other than vaguely encouraging her. Vita has powers, we'll only see later, but Mary isn't under her thrall. Vita told her she can do what she wants, and she wanted to slit a creep's throat open with a black and white Victorian doll. It's just weird. And on the subject of Vita having powers, this was both the time and place to establish them. We had two creeps working on a car engine, with only a hood support rod between them and a busted hand. A telekinetic powers reveal was served up on a silver platter, but Mary slapped it out of the server's hand with a Honda doll. So, the creeps back off, presumably so the bleeding one can die. We never do get closure on that. And Mary runs right back into the store. What happens next is dialogue right out of M.C. Escher's dreams. The Sims see a blood splatter on Mary's dress. Ask what happened to the dress, not her. And she replies, some boys were picking on me. She scratched them. And the response is, she's got quite an imagination. What? What is any of this? Why did they write this? Why did they shoot this? Why did they go out of their way to include the blood splatter just so they could have this cul-de-sac of an exchange? Why did Mary just confess to murder? Why not lie about a bloody nose or something if you absolutely felt like you had to include it? This is 80s parenting at its finest. Even by the standards of the day, the scene is just madness. None of it matters. There are no repercussions to anything. Mr. Sim tries to buy Vita, and Uncle Lewis kicks them out. Yeah, this this part of the script is one of the worst parts because I don't like this. Like you wouldn't even ask like what boys like what are you even if she's making this up, which I'm assuming they think she is. It's it's not a concerning thing that she's making up. Like oh, she's making up that boys are picking on her and scratching her, and she's got blood on her. Like where is this? You might ask questions like, what boys? Or more simply, where were you just now? Yeah. And where did that blood come from? Obviously, they may think it's not coming from boys. There's no boys in here, whatever. But like, no, tell us where the blood came from. Maybe before finding Vita, before the the beginning of this story, she already has such a high kill count that the, <laughs> that the Sims are just repressing it. They're like, oh, I don't even want to know. Sometimes she just comes home with like some fingers or an eyeball. And so they just, they're just in deep, deep denial. That makes a lot more sense to me than the conversation they had. He stuffs Vita and sundry other items into a sack in a moment reminiscent of Steve Martin's The Jerk. Just this haunted doll and this demonic candelabra and my thermos. Then he heads down into a basement with a truly fascinating piece of set design. In what looks like an archway, most of a brick wall has been partially torn down to reveal stonework behind it, into which a bank vault-level door has been installed. It's Edgar Allan Poe meets Barbarian, and raises a host of legitimately interesting questions I hope are explored in the future. The vault door seems the most modern, but it's built into a stone wall that appears the most ancient. But it's all behind a brick wall, which one would think was built to hide the ancient vault. But then, why build an archway that frames it almost perfectly? Was the vault built first, then bricked over? Did he add the vault to the building? If so, given that he likes hiding things and secret switches, why not hide the vault? And if that wasn't enough mystery, there are three Hebrew letters carved into the doorway in a way that are visible, but casual, like graffiti. None of this is explored in the episode, so here's hoping it's explored later. Especially since, given where and when this was made, those three letters are probably the most diversity we're going to get on this show. <laughs> True that. 
In a further bit of possible gaslighting, the storm blows the shop door open, making a mess and blowing garbage in, but we don't see any evidence of this later. We just get an oblique line later about the place being a mess, which might be a reference to this, but it's hardly definitive. Uncle Lewis takes Vita out of the sack and puts her on a shelf in the vault so she can be easily found later. And this is probably as good a time as any to mention that the man is rocking a walk-in ascot that I'm ashamed to admit is only my second favorite piece of men's wardrobe in this episode. Oh ho ho, I bet I know you're first. <laughs> We're getting there. Just then, he has one of those awkward workplace encounters in which you're heading up a narrow staircase. But Satan is heading down. I really hate when I'm going up, Satan's coming down. It's just awkward. You back down two steps, you know, got to defer to the boss. <laughs> I know, just keep your head down. Just let him pass. Give one of those little, one of those little nods to Satan, like, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is accomplished with a simple, kind of scrappy, but charming practical effect of a series of little pyrotechnic explosions burning hoof prints into some wooden stairs. Unfortunately, it only serves to counterpoint the optical and digital effects we're about to get. Yeah, they blow so hard. The, <laughs> I do, they do. I like it's it's painful. You can't even really call it. C I mean, I guess it's technically CGI, but it's like, I mean, I think I could do it and I've never done CGI in my life. One, I don't think I've ever heard you say anything blows ever. So <laughs> I don't know that I've said it before. I don't know if it's ever called for it like this did. I'm glad the show got that out of you. And then two, well, what did you think about the scrappier practical effects? I like that. I always prefer practical effects. Like 99% of the time, I prefer practical effects. I just think they're so much cooler, so much more interesting. I know they're hard work. I mean, they can be cheesy. I mean, I'm obviously a massive fan of It, the original miniseries It, and they did a lot of practical effects in that, and I love most of them. When he turns into like, this is a tangent, but when he turns into like the claymation thing that goes down the drain, cheesy. But I don't know. I always think CGI looks lame, unless it's amazing. So... Yeah, I mean, I know that that drum has been pretty well beat by this point. I'm not necessarily even saying that the practical effects here are, like, amazing. Like I said, they're a little bit scrappy, but uh, but there's something kind of charming about that, you know? Yeah, and they're way better than their digital effects. My God, those are ridiculous. And they just are never as scary to me. Practical effects are always scarier to me. Yes, and. Exactly. <laughs> The vault doors fly open and a bunch of ghostly objects float out to taunt poor Uncle Lewis. Actually, these aren't terrible for their time. The more baffling issue with these is the decision to make them objects at all. Holla, I agree. I thought that was so fucking weird. I was like, I have never seen haunted objects floating around. And on what planet did someone think that was going to be creepy? Yeah, it's it seems more like what, like a Disney movie? Like, yeah. I don't know, Blackbeard's Ghost or whatever that film was called. Like, it feels like that. It's kind of like the opening credit sequence. Like, it almost feels more... I mean, I guess I shouldn't say this because I've never actually watched Goosebumps or Are You Afraid of the Dark, but, I mean, it feels like something more like what you would do for children. Like, they're not going to get it otherwise. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think even Jameson, my nephew, who is two, if he saw a show with floating brooms, I don't think he'd be scared. It's just strange. And shout out to friend of the show, Jameson. Hey, that's my boy. This show is like an optical illusion in which you simultaneously see the rabbit and the duck. They wanted to quickly convey it's a show about haunted objects, so they show us ghostly looking objects. Okay, fine. But the antique royal quiet deluxe portable typewriter didn't die, right? And it wasn't handcrafted of brimstone in Hell's Forge, was it? Aren't these just regular objects possessed by demons or something? Shouldn't we be seeing something like when the containment unit in Ghostbusters was shut down? Or hell, just the physical objects floating, but sans ghostly form? 
These questions are blown completely off the table in the very next moment when an incorporeal cross does take physical form and Uncle Lewis grabs it for some reason only to be scalded by it. And, just thrown in there, he holds it for an absurdly long time for something that is burning him. <laughs> for something burning his flesh? Yeah, he's like, oh, it hurts. I'm like, dude, let go. Just a thought. This moment is a rabbit hole of metaphysical questions such as, can a cross be evil? Can it be evil if God wills it? And if so, can God create a cross so evil even he can't hold it? Isn't Uncle Lewis evil? He did make a deal with the devil. I haven't studied Boolean operators in a while, but wouldn't him being evil and the cross being evil cancel each other out? Negative the burn? Negating the burn? Damn it. <laughs> or is this one of those far more common non-demonic crosses you're always hearing about and it just got lumped in with all the other demonic stuff? If so, good for you, Crossy. It might have burned a satanic symbol into his hand really too quick and poorly lit to be sure. And Uncle Lewis stumbles back into the freight elevator of the damned and we're treated to another cool pyrotechnic effect of a satanic symbol burning into the elevator's floor, right before the whole floor goes up in flames. And this all serves to completely undermine the plug-in fire effects they're about to green screen over a stock image of a mine shaft, giving the impression... <laughs> I don't know what that word was. It's like I was trying to say it, but my brain was like, that's not what's written. <laughs> I'm an actor, I stick to the script. <laughs> Any other time, I would appreciate that greatly. And this all serves to completely undermine the plug-in fire effects they're about to green screen over a stock image of a mine shaft, giving the impression the flames are above the shaft, not interacting with it, to create an illusion comparable with something high schoolers might have done on public access television at the time. Almost as bad, with no rigging or help from the camera, the show next wants to convince us a 7-year-old actor is hanging for his life. Fortunately, Uncle Lewis gives up pretty quickly and we're treated to a composite effect of him falling that looks exactly as good as you think it does. Commercial break! Some shows have a monster of the week. This series has a curio of the week. And so do we. Believe me, no one paid us for the following endorsements. And, once they hear the show, it's more likely they'll pay us to retract them. We just want to share some cool things with you while simultaneously using our platform to give a little free promotion to those without a massive advertising budget. So Hill Street, what is your Curio of the Week? My Curio of the Week is the Depop app. D-E-P-O-P. I love that app. It's an app where you can basically sell your stuff that you don't want anymore. Which I know there's a lot of apps for that, but I like this one specifically. I think it's designed really well. I mean, people will literally buy anything on this app. Like, anything. Like, people will buy your, like, eyeshadow palette that you've been using for six months. And you just clean it and they'll buy it half used. It's kind of crazy to me. You can get buy, you can sell, like, any of your old stuff. It's kind of crazy. It's a really good way to, like, make money. And it's a good way to get rid of stuff. I am trying to get rid of stuff. I am the ultimate collector of stuff that I don't need. I am constantly buying new clothes and I want to get rid of my old clothes. So I, I sell my old clothes on here. And I mean, I like how it's designed because it's very user friendly. It's really easy to list the stuff that you want to sell. It's very easy to buy stuff from people that you want to sell. And you can put up a price. Like let's say I'm selling a dress for $30. You can put up a price. And if someone likes your item, like gives it a heart saying that they, they like what you're selling, you can, there's a button where you can hit send offer. So if I listed it for 30 and someone likes it, I can send them an offer for 25 or whatever and say hey do you want to buy it for this price or they can send me an offer 
A lot of people just buy it for what you list it for because usually people list things for pretty decent prices, but never hurts to send an offer if you want to buy something and be like, hey, you know, you're willing to sell it for $6 less or something. And their shipping is really easy too because they just have Depop shipping where you just print the label right at your house, stick it on the box and just drop it off at like a package drop off. So you don't have to like deal with going to the post office and waiting in line. And you just do it based off of the weight of the item. Like if you think it's less than a pound, if you think it's two pounds or whatever. So it's, it's all just really, really easy to use. And it's a good way to make extra cash. There's really cool, unique stuff on there that you don't see at the store a lot of the time. Like I've found things. That's the danger of the app though, I will say. You, sometimes you're on there trying to make money and sell stuff. And then you see stuff. You're like, ooh, I want that. I need that. But I have also done trades on there where... I have something that's too big for me, someone else has something that's too small for them, whatever, and we'll trade versus selling. That's another way to use the app. But yeah, I think it's a really cool app and I've already sold probably 15 or 20 things on there that I didn't want and didn't need and somebody else wanted. So big, big fan of the Depop app. Highly recommend. Well, I'm glad you've learned to get by with only 10 candelabras. <laughs> and skulls. Yeah, I know. Oh my God, I could get rid of so many skulls. <laughs> My curio of the week is Canadian filmmaking collective Astron 6. If you like Sam Raimi, James Gunn, or Red Letter Media, check out their diverse filmography, which leans heavily into genre fare. If you already know of them, it's probably from their features The Editor, Father's Day, and Man Borg, but their short films are just as entertaining and available for free on their website, and, to a lesser extent, YouTube. Some of the former members are still making films, including Psycho Gorman, but it's a shame the group as a whole didn't find wider success, as I can think of no one except Raimi who was able to do so much with so little. Put it this way, if you like the title of their short film, Laser Ghosts 2, Return to Laser Cove, you'll probably like their work. And if you recognize you're witnessing genius upon learning there is no previous Laser Ghost film, and they spell laser both ways, definitely track them down. One stock footage establishing shot of a lovely, if completely nondescript, Canadian city later. And we meet Mickey, one of our three main characters, and her Patrick Bateman and training lawyer fiancé Lloyd, who's none too pleased Mickey has been called away to deal with her dead uncle's haunted curio shop. Plus, he probably has to return to some videotapes. We don't see it, but I guarantee you Lloyd has an absolutely inscrutable vanity plate, and the restraint they showed in not giving him a giant late 80s cell phone blows my mind. <laughs> In a speed run of bad acting choices, the actor portraying him points to an my bad, points to indicate he's talking to someone, touches his chin to convey he's thinking, hmm, then adjusts his tie to express confidence in his decision. Aha. It's a rapid fire trifecta of bad acting known in Canada as a hat trick. In a series of night shots that are as dark or light as they need to be at any given moment, Mickey, suitcase still in hand, lest we be confused, she had to travel far from home, arrives at Uncle Lewis's shop, finds the door ajar, and just heads in anyway. I know, that one was a head-scratcher for me too, and then she's like surprised when there's someone else in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it seems obvious. And uh, again, uh, editor's note, so I've seen a few more episodes than you, who only seen the first episode time of this recording there's no explanation given in this episode but uh yeah it'll actually turn out later that she and ryan the lion live here oh okay yeah so it makes sense if you hang in there for four episodes but uh yep yeah, that's never explained in the first <laughs> first three interesting okay 
87% more baffling is the decision to have one lone extra walk past, which Mickey doesn't notice, demonstrating an alarming lack of situational awareness, especially for someone about to investigate a business with a front door that's ajar. Granted, it's Canada, so I guess she was never in any real danger. A masked figure jumps out to scare her, so she breaks a vase over its head. I know, and just, he doesn't flinch. She breaks a freaking glass vase over his head, and he, like, like almost no flinch. He's like, boop, like, head dips for a second, and he's like, hey, like, shows no pain. Also, you just broke a priceless urn we can't sell. <laughs> and you probably released a ton of ghosts. <laughs> that too, good call. This turns out to be her cousin, Ryan the Lion Dalian, playing a prank. Ryan is wearing a wide-necked fuchsia t-shirt, which I only bring up to support my friend Hill Street's theory the show ran out of a budget to provide the actors with wardrobe, but they didn't realize it until he showed up on location, so he's always just wearing whatever old comfortable clothes he threw on to drive to set. I fully believe that. I'm with you. Ryan the Lion proceeds to check out Mickey, learn she's his cousin, then openly hits on her in that order. That is true. We're gaslit again when they claim there's no electricity, despite being lit too well for the meager light coming from the few candles scattered about. Then Ryan the Lion again checks out his cousin, despite the fact that she's wearing some type of neck-to-ankle 80s trench coat that's about as form-revealing as living room curtains. If you're gonna creep, creep correct. Did this stand out to you? I mean, much like the motorcycle, I lose sleep over this. This is one of the most baffling things in the show to me. And it doesn't go, it doesn't, I'm, I'm going to warn you, having, uh, you know, seen a few episodes ahead of you, it doesn't go away. So, yeah, I mean, did this stand out to you? Like, the fact that they're introduced as cousins in the exact same scene that he's hitting on her and, like, creeping on her. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's so odd. It's such an odd choice. Like, I don't know why, I don't know if they thought it would just be funny or entertaining, but it's just odd. Like... I, they could have someone else creeping on her throughout the show. It didn't have to be her cousin. I don't know why they're playing up that angle. But yeah, it's quite blatant. It's not subtle. It's weird. Yeah, I mean, you've got, we're going to meet Jack Marshak in a little bit, who's an older gentleman from an even still older time where, you know, it would not have been strange for him to be openly flirting with a younger woman. And also, uh, she's not a blood relation of his. I have to tell you, I used to be kind of quoted and known for thinking that incest wasn't that big of a deal. You, known and quoted. <laughs> like I was like, Street, I'll bite. <laughs> I was like, like I, I kind of brought it up at this, good thing this is anonymous, huh? I like kind of brought it up at this, uh, like theater thing I was in, I think when I was older, like, like, I don't know, like maybe 19 or 20. And I was like, at this family reunion. And <laughs> that's the thing, like, I don't really have a lot of extended family, so maybe it's just like a foreign concept to me. But I was like, you know, I get how people could get crushes on like cousins. Like they, they're just like people that you meet up with every once in a while and they feel familiar to you because they were raised kind of similarly to you maybe. And like, like siblings, I can get how that's a little weird. And like, I understand like the whole babies are, you know, uh... It's coming out weird. I'm not going to lie. As I'm saying it, it's coming out weird. But, like, I understand that, like, if you have babies with people in your family, they come out messed up. I get that that's a problem. But, like, with cousins, I'm like, okay. Like, I know a lot of little kids get crushes on their cousins because they're, like, they're good friends. And they hang out with them all the time. And they feel familiar. So, like, I understand, like, people getting crushes on their cousins and stuff because... 
they're your good friends and you see them every once in a while and like they're not like in your direct family so I used to say like I don't know I don't think it's that big of a deal and and people thought that was pretty weird was this the forum to bring up your crush on one anthropomorphic rat in the form of when Mr. Chuck E. Cheese? Don't go there! <laughs> Why did you bring that up? Some things are sacred. <laughs> Chuck E. Cheese is very sexy. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I just am saying, I don't know. It's, I don't think it's crazy, but... <laughs> well, well, then I got a show for you, Hill Street. Um, I'm just, I'm known and quoted. That's all I'm saying. But, uh, it took a long time for me to live that down. I had to move around a lot. But, uh, yeah, I know. No, I, I did. I'm, I know what you're saying. It was a weird element that they put in there. In the back of the story, they discover what I'm certain will become the show's Winchester Mobile. That's a little supernatural shout out for all you people. That's my shout out for you, Hill Street. Sitting in it, Mickey enjoys a poorly executed jump scare in which a timpani drum comes in before the cut, ruining the surprise. Then a black cat is tossed directly into a deep pocket of shadow on the seat beside her, meaning we can't see it and have to rely on a sound effect to even know it's a cat. Seriously, them giving away their own jump scare is just hilarious to me. Kind of a moot point since they preceded it with a joke, not tension, so yeah. But Mickey is so scared she runs off downstairs for some reason and discovers the vault. Ryan the Lion declares the junk inside treasure for God knows why, then props the vault door open with a steel bar while they explore. It bends, and Mickey is trapped inside, which begs the question, is the stuff, or maybe the building itself, going to try to kill them each week? This moment with Ryan the Lion impotently banging on the door would have been the moment to go to commercial, but instead Mickey sees Vita move on her own before awkwardly sliding sideways out of the frame. Then we fade to commercial. Commercial break! If you like the horror genre as much as we do, you can preview the horror comic book Requiem for a Psychopath right now for free at the Interdemon Entertainment website. Imagine a world in which horror film slashers are real, then imagine a troubled team bringing one out of retirement to help him take revenge on his bullies. It was written by me and drawn by friend of the show, Stephen Yu. Again, that's Requiem for a Psychopath on the Interdemon Entertainment website. And if you dig it, Please either review and rate it five stars on Amazon, or don't rate and review it at all. Ratings of less than five stars send the algorithm into murder mode for some reason. Thanks. I hope you enjoy it. Mickey escapes by pushing hard, I guess, then runs away from the camera, possibly does something in the dark we can't see, runs right back towards the camera, heads upstairs, where she accidentally twists a random support column over railing, opening a ceiling vent, and down drops Uncle Lewis's sales manifest. It's an odd hiding spot in that the vent has a very open, ornate design, both drawing the eye and allowing an observer to see right through it. And we saw earlier that Uncle Lewis can also access it from a matching vent in the second story floor of his office, making it twice as likely to be found, and the whole secret twisty column entirely unnecessary, although we do learn later Uncle Lewis simply liked that sort of thing. And hey, everyone needs a hobby. It's a new day, and in the sunlight we realize the antique store is located in the same building as Patty's Pub, which is appropriate given that Ryan the Lion is wearing Charlie's Day's wardrobe. The one time Ryan the Lion is seen in clothes that look like they were actually selected by a costume department, and it's a jaunty ensemble of dress shirts, sport jacket, loose tie, and what can only be called business shorts. And I'm just gonna say it, I'm on board. It's no more odd than Mickey's broom skirt, white tank top ensemble, which, a little note to the viewers, 
no bra, which is wildly distracting even for me, and I don't even like boobs, but I just could not stop staring at the fact she had a white tank top with no bra. Throwing it out there. Kind of stunning the production's design to have her bra- oh. Kind of stunning the production's decision to have her braless under sheer white fabric past television standards of the era, but there it is. See? On See, the same we're, page. We're, we're on the same wavelength. Yep, yes we are. They're going out of business sale seems to be drawing a reasonable crowd, so I can only assume the neighborhood gingham factories are on their L-word break. Oh, right. You forgot about that, didn't you? Can you muster through for this one? I can only assume the neighborhood gingham factories are on their lunch break. <sighs> now, gentle listeners, steal your minds for the reality-shattering line of dialogue that is about to follow. If you are standing, be seated. If you've ever wanted to do a spit take, waft deeply now from the nearest beverage. Our old friend Mr. Sim nonchalantly strolls in to purchase Vita, the doll he saw there, six months before. Six months before. Now, I'm sure it takes time to host a proper going out of business sale, but six months? Six months. Ryan the Lion doesn't have anything better going on, but has Mickey been away from Lloyd for six months? There's no way. Did it take months for authorities to realize Uncle Lewis had disappeared? Probably not. I presume the show is accurately reflecting how long it took the legal system to declare Mickey and Ryan the Lion the legitimate heirs of the store since Uncle Lewis didn't actually will it to them, which is kind of an interesting detail, but it's a level of gritty reality that you just don't expect from a show like this. So the line hits you like a freight train and again, makes you assume you've just suffered a psychotic break. That line was ridiculous, Robert. <laughs> Throw me <laughs> under that bus, Hill Street. Like a million words in one sentence. You know my kink, being called out for my run-on sentences. <laughs> It's hot. And even once you've mentally reoriented your timeline, you're still left wondering, has Mr. Sim been coming back every day for six months? Does his commute to his fiduciary advisor job take him through a Bowery? Did he just get incredibly lucky showing up today of all days without calling first? It's been so long, Mary's probably grown out of playing with dolls at this point. Did you play with dolls when you were young? I played with Barbies. Really? Yeah, I was obsessed with Barbies. My sister was the baby doll girl and I was the Barbie girl. Because it's like acting, and I grew up to love acting. It's like you get to create little scenes, you know? Did you dress them in black and paint their faces white and tear them apart? Absolutely. Cut their heads off, dragged them by their hair with remote cars. Hell yeah. <laughs> that last one is too specific to be made up. <laughs> oh, it was real. <laughs> um, and then once you get old enough, you just make them have sex. Did you and your sister really have remote cars? Yeah, we loved them. And we loved dragging our Barbies around the house by their hair and running over them. <laughs> you both did. Uh, yeah, she's the one who got me into it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. She was a little twisted. She used to kill her Sims off all the time in the Sims game. She used to like put them in the pool and then take all the ladders away so they drown or she'd like set them on fire. She's grown up to be a totally normal human being, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> the FBI, if you're listening. Yeah, no, she's a gem of a human and a great mom. But yeah, she was like kind of twisted. I'm the Good one who grew up a little questionable. Did you ever do the tea party thing? No, we never did tea parties. I don't, I never got into that. And when I see it in movies, my brain's like, that's not real because we didn't do it. But I guess some kids are into that. Well, that's my question. Is it, There's this thing that we just never seem to really question in media where it's like, oh, it's a little girl and she's having a tea party. And I mean, like, yeah, maybe these days, not so much, but, you know, media from a couple decades ago, like, no question, right? Right. I understand enacting things that, like, you picture adults doing. 
if it's a case of like, oh, I'm going to marry my two stuffed animals. It's like, okay, yeah, marriages are real and happen in modern day. Yeah. Uh, but it's like, but like, why a tea party? Like, I, I would understand, I would understand a little child being like, oh, okay, let's do a dinner because kids have dinner every single night. It's a thing that actually happens. And if you kind of are trying to imitate things you know and you see adults doing, which a lot of children do, that makes sense. But tea parties aren't something that American children certainly, you know, um, see adults doing. It seems like they've only maybe heard of them through like English literary works from a couple hundred years ago. Right. So like what's the impetus for any young child to be like, oh, that's something I want to imitate? Yeah, I know. I don't know. I've never done it. I didn't do it with my friends. Um, I mean, it would have to be something that their parents were like, this would be fun. I don't I don't know where they're getting that from. I never did it. I remember Barbies. I remember baby dolls. I remember I remember going to my friend Alexa's house and her mom had a chest of like costumes that we could dress up in. And that was so much fun. I always loved going over there and putting on like princess dresses and running around and playing dress up. Oh, until you said princess dresses, I was going to say the same thing here, actually. Uh, like my brother and I would go to a neighbor's house where they had a sack of old, they weren't costumes exactly, but uh, there was some stuff in there. I think there was like maybe like uh, some karate pants or something like that, or maybe someone's old like army jacket or something, but it was, it was costume adjacent. And so, yeah, we just kind of was like, oh yeah, let's put on this and pretend for a little bit. And then we'd switch to something else. Yeah, that was so much fun. We I did, like, it wasn't all princess dresses, but yeah, like, costumes were so much fun. And I don't know, after we put them on, to be honest, I don't know what we did, but I just remember it was fun. Then again, I guess we were both predisposed. I mean, we've both done theater. Yeah, exactly. Circling back for a second, I just think, like, it almost seems like if you're going to see a child imitating a tea party in media, it almost seems like they should all be doing, like, a Mad Hatter impression. Yeah. Like, that should be their basis for, like, what a tea party is. And they should all be like, drink up, drink up, move down, move down, move down. That would be way more fun than what they actually do. That's what my kids will do. Shall we continue? The only rational conclusion is, despite having a wife and daughter at home, Mr. Sim cruises the Bowery on... Oh, my God, you're killing me with this L word. (laughs) The only national... Only national conclusion... (laughs) It is a national conclusion. The only rational conclusion is, despite having a wife and daughter at home, Mr. Sim cruises the Bowery on his lunch breaks. I know less is more, but one shot of him getting his mail and seeing an advertisement would have gone a long way towards establishing... What the hell? You want to take a stab at that, or should I go ahead and spoil the surprise? Verisimilitude? Verisimilitude, yeah. Verisimilitude? You nailed it. I know less is more, but one shot of him getting his mail and seeing an advertisement would have got a long way toward establishing the versimil... <laughs> Why you, you know, the llama here? The llama! Good movie theater. <laughs> the verisimilitude of this art. Why did you put this in here? My mind is just an- anxious <laughs> the did, whole time now. Why did you stop? You nailed it that time. Because I was anxious. But one shot of him getting his mail and seeing an advertisement would have gone a long way towards establishing the verisimilitude of this already mind-bending moment. Mickey doesn't want to sell Vita, but is won over by Ryan the Lion's cognate argument of, okay, but we're going to anyway, giving us a glimpse of the endless charm that earned him the moniker of the lion. And uh, we'll just do that one more time. It's uh, cogent. I wasn't really paying attention. I was just happy to use <laughs> <you> cast verisimilitude. <laughs> My script has broken your brain at this point, so 
Three quarters of the way through. We're getting there. We're getting there. Mickey doesn't want to sell Vita, but is won over by Ryan the Lion's cogent argument of, okay, but we're going to anyway, giving us a glimpse of the endless charm that earned him the moniker of the Lion. Rawr. That night, a hooded figure sneaks into the store, and after a comedy of errors, we meet the most charismatic adult actor of the show, Jack Marshak, who gives off a real Dr. Loomis vibes, and feels like he's going to be the Bobby to the show, Sam and Dean. Hey, That's for my supernatural folks out there. Wah, 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 wah. Shout out for Hill Street. Ayyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyy
Welcome to Crystal Ball, the segment where we gaze into the future and let time make fools of us all. Our Crystal Ball question of the week is, will the antiques always just happen to end up in the hands of psychopaths? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it it's what they think propels the story, is these antiques can't, well... You know what? That's an excellent question that you ask. My immediate reaction, my gut reaction was absolutely because they think that that's what makes it interesting is these these evil antiques ending up in the hands of evil people. But then I thought to myself, well, they could also go with it in like the kind of poltergeist direction of like, oh, we're innocent people and all this crazy stuff's happening to us. They could do an episode like that somewhere in there just to mix it up to keep it spicy. But yeah, it's funny, now that you mention it, they do seem to like evil people doing evil things with this stuff. So, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say I think that's their MO, which is hilarious. It's such a bizarre choice. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me there are essentially three primary ways it could go. Either they always end up in the hands of people who are basically already evil, like young Mistress Mary. Yeah. They could end up in the hands of people who are basically good, and then they somehow influence them to become evil. Or option C is that the objects uh, simply act autonomously. Uh, those seem like the, the three primary options. And so uh, you're going to go ahead and push all your chips on to they, they always just happen to end up in the hands of psychopaths? Yep. Cool. As of the time of this recording, you've seen the first two episodes. Uh, I've seen the first four. That's probably going to differ a little bit from what I said earlier on this very episode. But unfortunately, we weren't able to record this all in one go. I'm coming to this from a little bit different perspective. I can tell you from episode three, people can get their hands on these objects and not uh, be influenced by them, not turn evil. Someone who, meaning someone who is presumably, we assume, otherwise basically good, can get the object and not be put under its thrall and not do anything evil with it. That said, uh, where I'm going to go ahead and make a prediction, and I'm sure get way out over my skis and make a fool of myself, is I think despite the fact that that is clearly established in the third episode, I think they're basically going to ignore that moving forward. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it happens once, but I think like a lot of things on, things on this show, it's going to happen that one time. But I think after that, we're going to go back to the pattern of what you said. They're always going to end up with people who are basically evil. And I, I think the odds of that happening are insanely slim and doesn't really make a lot of sense and strains credulity, but I think it's going to happen regardless. So uh, I think we're on the same page. We both think that every single week these objects are going to fall into the hands of absolute psychopaths just by sheer coincidence. They think it's what makes it a good storyline, which again, I think is such an odd choice. Right. I mean, I understand the drama. I mean, you need bad people to do bad things and it's I guess it's faster, although when magic's involved, I mean, the objects could just instantly make people turn evil and we'd believe it because they're all possessed by demons, theoretically. So I don't think speed is of the essence. But uh, yeah, regardless, I I do think that's the way it's going to play out, even though it's statistically far and away the least likely. Yeah, and just like, I understand the drama aspect, but there can also be a lot of drama when something bad is happening to good people. Yeah, that's an excellent point. There would be a lot more at stake in terms of character and a lot more development there if otherwise good people were not uh, not necessarily influenced as in under the spell of the object, but were, you know, maybe persuaded. You know, if, if Ida was suggesting Mary do something bad and Mary had to make the moral choice, 
Uh, it would be far more complex, but I just don't think they're interested in that. Nope, not their style. Which, hey, I respect it. They've made their choice and they're sticking to it. I think so too, but uh, prove us wrong, episode. <laughs> prove us wrong. Coming back from commercial is a fine example of the worst day-for-night shot of all time. These frames were stolen from a day shot later in the episode without them even bothering to move the bicycle off the lawn, use every part of the buffalo but not the waste in its digestive tract, and then that train wreckage of a visual storytelling is counterpointed by a nicely staged and framed bit of camera movement that demonstrates the actress playing Mary is also good at manipulating Buta while acting. So, at this point, it's really anyone's ballgame. For reasons I'm not clear of, Uncle Lewis's manifest has the Sims address, and I guess address is for everyone who ever bought something. So Mickey and Ryan the Lion head off to warn them, while Jack Marshak, the most experienced member of the team by a country mile, goes off to consult with a medium about something, and it isn't seen again until the final moments of the episode. Yeah, I know, I also thought it was really weird they had the addresses for everyone. I'm like, don't most stores, you go to buy something and you give them cash and you walk away? Who the hell has the addresses for everything? I'm so glad you're chiming in on this because I think you have been to far more antique stores than I and have probably purchased a lot more antique kind of stuff and curios and whatnot. And yeah, I'm like, <laughs> this isn't this isn't like a bed and breakfast in Europe where I expect them to like write down the name of everyone who spends a night. I know it was the 80s. Uh, apparently it was Canada, but the idea that, yeah, you're going to get like a full name and address for every single sale seemed odd to me. And then also, doesn't that negate almost the entire premise of the show? Like if you're if the if the drama is we have to track these objects down and find these people, it's like, oh, well, here they are. Yep. Excellent point. As soon as that sales manifest falls from the ceiling, like, well, we can close the book on this one. Yeah. A couple hours <laughs> of phone calls and this show is done. All in a day's work, my friend. The only reason people would be giving their dresses is if they bought something massive like a dresser and it needed to be delivered. It's like coming back in through customs. Um, do you have any haunted items to declare? <laughs> do you have any items that are haunted and more worth more than $10,000? I'm sorry, you have to put them on the form, sir. <laughs> Mrs. Sim, Mary's stepmom, who seems tough but fair, puts Vita in a closet only to have Mary immediately retrieve her. Could have trimmed some fat there. Mrs. Sim intervenes, and now, a mere 31 minutes into a 45-minute episode, we learn that Vita has telekinesis when she lines up a roller skate at the top of the stairs. Even though Mary does as she's told and approaches with Vita, Mrs. Sim, clearly spooked, backs away, and given how creepy Mary is, fair, we get a solid old-school stair fall and a nicely composed high-angle shot of a deceased Mrs. Sim, and Mary wandering off with a complete indifference to her second kill. At least, the second we know of. But no, she's not dead. Mickey and Ryan the Lion show up just in time for Mary, Vita, and Mrs. Sim to hop into an ambulance with Mrs. Sim, and off they go. Technically, they could have grabbed Vita right then and there, but stealing a doll from a little girl whose mom almost just died probably would raise too much attention, so the chase continues. I wouldn't give a fuck. I'd be like, you give me that fucking doll, you piece of shit. That'd be me. But, you know. And then the episode would be too short. They got to fill 45 minutes, so. In Mrs. Sims' hospital room, Vita tells Mary to kill her stepmom. And she does. No hesitation. In a death scene that's awkward for all concerned, Mary holds Vita up to her stepmom's mouth. And Vita <laughs> swallows her soul? Maybe? Drew the hallelujah? Not really clear. But poor put-upon Mr. Sim comes back 
finds his dead wife and begins to cry while Mary sits nearby, alternately playing with Vita, giggling and flashing a sideways glance at her dad that says, Watch it, old man, or you're next. Commercial break! Let's go ahead and kick off our one-time-only segment. Where does The Inheritance and Vita rank in terms of other haunted doll stories? I'm going to put it somewhere in like the middle to lower middle. Um, my tops are probably the original Chucky. I mean, I love the original Chucky movies. I was obsessed with Chucky as a kid, like weirdly obsessed. He scared me so much when I was little, little. And I would like go look at the cover of the Chucky movies at the video store and like get so scared. But I was so intrigued and into it. I finally was allowed to watch them. And I loved them. I mean, they're old-fashioned now, but I still have tons of Chucky merch. Still love Chucky. The original Annabelle, like the first Annabelle, I think sucks. I think it's really cheesy. Annabelle Comes Home, which is the third one I actually liked. Megan, which is the new doll movie, wasn't for me. I found it to be pretty cliche and predictable. I guess it had some fun moments, but overall wasn't my favorite. The Child's Play movie with like the, the recent Chucky, I enjoyed. I thought that was funny. Probably my favorite doll movie of all time that I think is actually creepy is Dead Silent by James Wan. He directed it, I think. Love that one. I think it's great. I think it's creepy. There was another really classic scary doll movie when I was a kid from like, I think it was a Shadow Zone movie called My Teacher Ate My Homework, where the teacher becomes an evil doll. (laughs) Loved that. That was one of my favorites. So anyway, as far as Vita goes, I'm going to put her above Annabelle. Yeah, you heard that right. Above the original Annabelle, the first Annabelle movie. But I'm going to put her below the original Chucky and My Teacher Ate My Homework. Because My Teacher Ate My Homework is a freaking classic. And if you haven't seen it, what are you doing? Just to clarify, are you putting the the episode, The Inheritance, above those movies? Or are you specifically talking about which haunted doll you like better? I'm talking specifically about the dolls. Also... If you saw the boy, she's above the boy because the doll and the boy was stupid. What's your favorite haunted doll story? What's your least favorite haunted doll story? And then what is your favorite haunted doll period and your least favorite haunted doll? My favorite haunted doll story is Dead Silent. My least favorite is probably Megan. I just didn't think that was scary and I thought it was really cliche. I had high expectations because I was hearing it was really good and I just didn't love Megan. Yeah, I don't know. It was it was too tech heavy for me. I, I like the more classic dolls. Uh, my favorite doll ever is Chucky. I love Chucky. I think he's super creepy. Um, my least favorite doll, oof, probably uh, the doll from The Boy. I think his name is Brom. No, it's not Brom. Maybe, what is his name in the movie? Brom might be the director or something. The doll was a self-insert. Oh, named after himself, yeah. <laughs> in terms of The Inheritance and Vita, um, you're saying both the episode and Vita as a doll are uh, mid to lower tier? Yeah, I would put Vita the doll. I mean, I find her very entertaining because she's so bizarre and like the weird whispering she does is so strange. The actual, okay, let me break it down. The physical appearance of the doll, I'm going to put her in mid-range. She's creepy looking. She's definitely strange looking. Like we've said, she's kind of monochromatic. The voice is okay. It's kind of whispery. It could be creepier. They could have done some more like 
a little bit of like demonic sounds coming out of her on occasion. Her voice pretty much consistently stays at like a light whisper. And they could have had like, at times it changes and morphs into creepiness, if that makes sense. And, you know, she never like moves really much on her own to like, she turns her head and stuff, but it's never like she like gets down and runs away, which I always think is creepy when the evil dolls like actually walk and run on their own. Mary pretty much carries her the whole time. So I'm giving her like, I'm giving the doll like a, a B minus maybe. I like her appearance. I think they could have done a little more with her to make her creepy. The episode itself, I'm giving it a C as far as how I'm comparing it to these other doll movies. Because I, you know, I think some of them were stronger, but, but I like the doll. Yeah, the doll definitely is an interesting design. So I didn't hear this on your list, and this is um, a deep cut reference, but are you familiar with the Twilight Zone episode, Talking Tina? Yes. Hold on, let me look up the doll. I've seen it. Okay, while you're looking that up, I'll, I'll just take this opportunity to mention that if I'm being perfectly honest, I'm not the biggest fan of the subgenre of haunted doll movies, mm-hmm. not my favorite type of horror, but I am a big fan of the episode of Talking Tina. That is a classic episode of a classic show, and uh, Talking Tina is incredibly well done. Um, It does things very differently than the episode The Inheritance. That episode of The Twilight Zone is an excellent example of how, with no special effects whatsoever, it just manages to tell a very creepy, very compelling story on a very minuscule television budget and um, is incredibly effective. That's cool. Now I really want to watch it. Were you able to um, look up anything of note there? Anything you want to comment on before we end this? Her look, even when she's not doing anything evil, is absolutely creepy. Her eyes, their evil eyes, the shape of the way her eyebrows are and everything. She just looks like an evil son of a bitch. You know what? Does does she, does someone in that episode stab the floor? I don't believe so. Meaning like pin her to the floor with a knife? Yeah, my mom once told me, and I'm like, did I dream this? My mom once told me about some doll possessing people or something, and at the end of the episode, I don't think it's I don't think it's this. I don't remember what it was from, but some some show like this, similar to Twilight Zone, where like every episode's a different creepy thing. Um, at the end of the episode, the girl like calls her mom to come over for dinner, and the mom's like, "Sure," and then you see her hang up the phone, and then she sits down on the floor and starts like stabbing the floor in front of her. I have this vivid memory of my mom imitating it for me when I was little, and it, even her imitating it, not having seen the sh- seen the episode, scared the absolute crap out of me. But it was some kind of doll episode, but I guess it must not be this. Uh, no, in Talking Tina. Or actually, the episode is technically called Living Doll, but let's be honest, it's the Talking Tina episode. Uh, It stars Telly Savalas, and in that episode, it's actually the father. So it's kind of the opposite of The Inheritance, where Mr. Sim never has any idea that the doll is haunted. In the case of Talking Tina, only the father suspects that the doll is haunted. And it's very much psychological horror where the doll undermines the father. I believe he might be a stepfather, but I I could be wrong about that. But yes, the the doll kind of attacks uh, the father's masculinity, kind of undermines him as the man of the house and gradually uh, works on his insecurities to push him to hate the doll. And it becomes a rivalry between those two. But there's, again, no telekinesis, no special effects, no bloods. It's very psychological, but very effective. Hmm, that's cool. Mickey and Ryan the Lion show up to the hospital to have an exchange with two nurses that is just wrong. 
If they could have done a second take, I'm sure they would have, because the actor's choice of emphasis and cadence create a conversation that doesn't make sense until you think about what they were trying to say. A nurse asks, are you friends or relatives? To which Ryan the Lion replies, yes, we are. We're Mrs. Sims' niece and nephew. What it should have been was, are you friends or relatives? Yes, we are. We're Mrs. Sims' niece and nephew. Weirdly, it's like the actors are actually working together to undermine the lines as written. Yes, Anne, I guess. When the nurse looks concerned, Mickey proceeds to ask, is something wrong? As if nothing about a suspected haunted doll attack could possibly be wrong. Upon learning of Mrs. Sims' tragic demise, our heroes hear the call to action and go home to get some shut-eye, one assumes? Can't be sure, but they definitely do not return to the Sims' house to prevent more death. To establish a new day, we're treated to the day-for-day version of the day-for-night shot we saw earlier. The job of our story, Mr. Sim tearfully heads off to make funeral arrangements, leaving a neighbor to watch young Mary prance and cavort and play with her stuffed toys and Vita, completely guilt-free of murdering her stepmom the previous night. In a shockingly subtle piece of acting, the neighbor actually seems to acknowledge what a little psycho Mary is. It's kind of a moot point because the production design includes what is probably literally an eight-foot-tall stuffed giraffe that steals focus from every important aspect of the scene. I know, I also couldn't stop staring at that. Just a really strange choice. It's like one of the first things I picture when I think about this episode. Lives rent-free in my head. Mary confirms she's not only psychotic, but is now also mad with power by demanding cookies, getting them, and then still evicting the perfectly civil neighbor lady from her house. The neighbor doesn't even protest, but Mary still proceeds to team up with Vita to start flinging records at her. Mickey and Ryan the Lion finally show up courtesy of the Winchester Mobile, which is already parked at the curb. They stroll casually up to the house, creating a strong sense of tension in the viewer who's on the edge of their seat, wondering, will the show be able to afford the insurance to ever see it being driven? That's funny. Inside, Mary, I mean, technically Mary and Vita, but Vita is really just a means to an end, is terrorizing an old woman with toys, culminating with her being strangled by jump ropes connected to a shelf, which she pulls down on top of herself when she collapses. Mickey and Ryan the Lion finally get through the front door just in time to be of no help which is perfectly on point for their characters. Feels apt. Even though Mary and Vita are long gone, the disheveled room resets in what must be the director paying subtle homage to the MST3K classic pod people. Vita, you can do stupid things. All the evidence of an otherwise obvious telekinetic haunted doll attack has been eliminated other than, you know, a crushed, lacerated, ligature-marked corpse. Truly the perfect crime. Hiding the evidence is even more pointless given that Mickey and Ryan the Lion discover she is not dead and could later reveal what happened. But they wisely split up with Ryan the Lion calling for an ambulance while Mickey heads out to battle Mary alone. Between Ryan the Lion taking phone duty, Jack Marshack off doing God knows what, and Mickey's fiance being a total douche, Mickey's opinion of men is probably at an all-time low. That's good, Mickey. Keep it there. Keep that bar low. Still feels good to clear it. (laughs) Still feels good to clear it. (laughs) (laughs) Mickey approaches Mary swinging on what I assume is the Mr. Bill Memorial Playground based on the nightmarish clown that looms over it all. That is the strangest playground ever. That's the other image that goes into my head when I picture this episode. This fucking playground where the clown like spits fire when you walk up to it or something. Yeah, it's one of those moments where it's so simple. But afterwards, if you tell someone. So like, yeah, so they go to this playground with this strange fire spitting clown that looms over everything. You're like, wait, wait, no, I'm. I'm sorry, I guess I dreamt that. 
Yes, I. that's how I feel. I've seen this episode at least four times. And this playground, every time I think about it, I'm like, I feel like that's something from my nightmare and that wasn't in the episode. And then I watched the episode. I'm like, no, it's in here. <laughs> it's so strange because it's not related to the doll. So this playground exists, but not related to the doll. And it's such a terrifying playground. It's just, it's like all kinds of messed up. I, I hate it so much. I hate it. It's, it upsets me. It's one of, yeah, it's one of like two or three scenes in this show where you're certain if you show this episode to someone else, it would just skip over that scene or like she'd be at a normal playground and they'd be like, I, I don't get it. You'd be like, no, no, there was a clown. I tell you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm convinced I made it up every time. Total aside, um, do you know who Mr. Bill is? I do. Oh, no, Mr. Bill. I do. How do you know that reference? I bought a dog, a Mr. Bill dog toy for a friend, not getting that it was like a reference to something. And they were like, oh, my God, it's Mr. Bill. This is like an older person. They're like, oh, my God, this is Mr. Bill. That's hilarious. And her dog's obsessed with it. He's always making it go, oh, no, Mr. Bill, like all day long. And it drives them absolutely mad. And I didn't know it was a reference to something. So then I looked it up. Oh, cool. Yeah, she's like literally all day long. We just hear, oh no, Mr. Bill, like morning to night. And I was like, that's awesome. When you looked it up, did you actually, I don't know, go on YouTube and fire up an old episode of SNL and watch a sketch or anything? Yeah, I, I don't know if I watched the full sketch, but I got enough of it to get the gist. <laughs> that's fair. You don't need a lot to see where it's going, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mary pelts her with a swing and a move that proves she isn't just evil, but also kind of a jerk. In a pair of shots in which the color grading gets wonky for no apparent reason, the clown spits fire, which raises a whole host of new questions in the home stretch of this episode. Up until now, Vita can manipulate objects, but she doesn't make them do anything they can't already do. So could this creepy clown head always shoot fire? Is that standard for Canadian playgrounds? If you live in Canada, please let us know. I'm very glad that you brought that up because I know we just talked about it, but I just, I had the same questions. Like... What is happening? Did it always do this? Is she doing this? I just, I, I could talk about this all day long, but this playground scene is just like the most upsetting part of the episode for sure. Well, this is the time and place. We, we can go as deep into that as you want to because yeah, I, even having uh, seen a few more episodes, that's going to be a recurring theme is not really establishing the rules we're operating under yeah. ever. So I hate that. I hate untied ends. Loose ends. I guess I could have said loose ends. Untied ends isn't a saying. <laughs> <laughs> I hate loose ends. It just it, it haunts my brain in this stupid clown playground thing. I know. It's it's what draws me to this show. It begs these questions where it just invites you to fill in the gaps yourself. And I know by the time we, we finish watching this show, like, you know what my apartment looks like. Every single wall in this entire place is just going to be Charlie Day's conspiracy map of... <laughs> How do these things work? What are the rules? What kind of supernatural agreements are we under? Yeah, but uh, we will unravel it together. Mickey is then pelted by a tetherball. Now, I hate to blame the victim, but don't stand near the equipment and you won't get hit. True that. Like the best generals, Mary wisely picks the most advantageous ground for the final battle. At the center of a spinning children's merry-go-round, she can rest easy, whereas Mickey has to struggle to climb aboard. Is it a merry-go-round? I feel like it's called something else. You know, it's funny. I actually double-checked that to see if that was the right term. And as far as I could tell online, that is what it's called. Well, just so the you, you people out there know, this is not the one with the horses. This is the terrifying, like, disc 
with the little poles that you hold on to on the playground where someone always gets hurt and ends up going to the nurse because you fly off it or you fall off it or you get dragged or you get hit in the teeth or something. It's that dangerous ass thing that they put on playgrounds when we were kids. And I don't know why because they were so freaking dangerous. It's that merry-go-round. I'm sure they were all removed in like the early 2000s. But yeah, they were made out of like cast iron and steel and you held on for dear life until an older kid came over and spun you so fast you got flung for distance. Exactly. And you wanted to throw up for like four hours after that one. Yeah, and you landed on like the asphalt because apparently wood chips or sand hadn't been invented yet. Yeah, exactly. Glad we clarified. At the center of a spinning children's merry-go-round, she can rest easy, whereas Mickey has to struggle to climb aboard. It's actually kind of realistic as anyone who ever got him one I keep jumping the gun on these. We were on the same wavelength a surprising number of times. I yeah, like that's funny. It's actually kind of realistic, as anyone who ever got on one of these merry-go-rounds up to a decent speed as a kid can tell you this is actually much more difficult and tense than it sounds or even appears on camera. You have to remember, this was a time in history when every aspect of a child's physical activity was used to determine their fitness for military service. So true. Despite the humble setting, things now get biblical as our young Rommel... Rommel? No, 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 uh, you nailed it, Rommel. Yeah, the Desert Fox, uh, World War II... I almost said hero, uh, but he did fight with the Germans. <laughs> but uh, he was a very effective uh, tank commander, fought a lot of battles successfully in North Africa against the Allies. Despite the humble setting, things now get biblical as our young Rommel uses Vita to control the weather. The wind picks up and clouds roll in and we're once again subjected to terribly underexposed footage that's supposed to pass for a cloudy day. Ryan the Lion finally joins the fight and heroically steals a doll from a little girl, setting her flying off the merry-go-round where she hurts her arm and cries. Serves you right, Mary. Surely they will write songs of this legendary hero. FYI, if you want to learn the correct way to remove a haunted doll from a little girl on a merry-go-round, I'm sure Henner Gracie has put out a video. Holler! Jack Marshak seals Vita into the basement vault because haunted objects can't be destroyed, even though they should be sealing in Mary. Mickey and Ryan the Lion realize they'll need to retrieve every haunted object the shop has ever sold. When Mickey informs Lloyd she's going to be at this longer than expected, he hangs up on her and she doesn't really seem to care. So, character growth? Ryan the Lion proposes changing the name of the store, which only makes sense if they're going to continue selling items. So, presumably not everything is haunted. Nice to have closure on that lingering question. Jack Marshak sees something shocking in the newspaper, but we don't know what. Because why establish continuity if you don't have to? And we get a classic freeze frame to end. <laughs> the credits remind us there was a time when the position of wardrobe mistress existed. The present <laughs> Wardrobe mistress. That's funny. I feel like that's going to be now your calling in life is to get that title. Wardrobe mistress. Yeah, I just did costumes for the last show and I loved it. So I'd love to be a wardrobe mistress. Next time, ask nicely. I'm sure they'll give you that title. <laughs> The presence of a third assistant director instead of a second, second assistant director tee up the fact that this wasn't made in America, then the Maple Leaf logos of both the Association of Canadian Film Craftspeople and what appears to be the local 81 Union for Camera Operators absolutely crush the Canadianness of this production. I would be remiss if I brought this synopsis to a close without pointing out one final mistake. The end credits are over an image of Vita when it should clearly be young Mistress Mary. So true. She absolutely crushed that episode. She was the episode. She is the moment. So in doing some research for the show, I went on IMDb, of course, and looked into the cast a little bit. I'm going to check on Mary because, uh, you know, in my opinion, most interesting performance of the entire show. 
the nature of Mary's character is weird. And I don't understand the choice from like a writing and direction point of view. Uh But in terms of like doing what she was asked to do, she did it. Wonderful performance, wonderful actor. So I was curious, okay, let's go ahead and go on IMDb and, um, you know, see what else she might have done. Because especially as a child, a very young child in the 80s, I'm like, well, she could still well be doing stuff. And, you know, maybe I I know her from something, right? You know, IMDb kind of now throws up like what they're most known for. So I bring it up and I was like, okay, let's see. And like, oh, wow, she was in Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead. That's cool. And I was like, oh, well, that means she was also the lead of a movie called Go. Go is, uh, it's kind of a fan favorite of like cinephiles and people that are very into film. So I'm like, okay, cool. Like, wow, Dawn of the Dead and Go. And like, I didn't even, honestly, I didn't even realize that was the same actress, much less um, that it would be this actress from this show. So I'm like, wow, that is amazing. Very cool. Okay. And then... (laughs) And then I check out like, oh, but she also has writing and producing credits. Okay, well, maybe that also explains why she's not acting. Maybe it's not just like politics, but maybe she's segued into doing things behind the camera. And yeah, that is Sarah Polly, who, as of the time of my uh, writing of this script, she is currently up for an Oscar for Women Talking. Oh my God, that's amazing. Not as an actress, uh, but she was uh, up for Best Adapted Screenplay. And by the time we record this, she might be an Oscar winner. And yep, she won the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. That is Oscar winner, Sarah Polly, we see playing young Mistress Mary. See, we knew she was gold. That's cool. I mean, she probably more or less started with this show. I would have to double check, but I'm 99.9% certain this was absolutely introducing Sarah Polly. Yeah, and uh, she probably barely remembers doing it, honestly, when you're that young. But hey, I mean, you got to start somewhere, and now she's an Oscar winner. That's pretty freaking cool. Yeah. Oh, I would, I would give absolutely anything to interview her about this show. I know. That would be awesome. Which I'm also sure is the absolute last thing she would ever want to do. She's just sitting there in her director's chair with her feet resting on the head of her Oscar. I know. <laughs> Little spoiler, eventually here, one of these episodes is directed by David Cronenberg. So uh, be, yeah, be curious to see what other little, uh, you know, diamonds in the rough we discover as we go through this. Yeah. Are you good to uh, kick off uh, the maiden voyage of our recurring segment, Favorite Actor? Oh, easily, Mary. Easily. I mean, I don't, I kind of enjoy uh, Ryan the Lion too, just because he's weird. Oh, interesting. Okay, I, I never would have guessed that. Yeah. He's not good, necessarily, but there's, like, something quirky and entertaining about him than when he's, that when he's on screen, I, like, enjoy myself. Okay. Might be more his character. But, no, I mean, that's credit to the actor, too. I think he did his part pretty decently. I mean, he plays the zaniness of that character well. I was entertained. But, yeah, Mary's by far the best. Fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree with you that, um, about Mary. Definitely put her at the top. Yeah. Uh, knocked it out of the park. One of the creepiest kids I've ever seen in a show. Yeah. So very cool there. But yeah, actually my order w- would be a little bit different. Now, I know you weren't a huge fan of Chris Wiggins playing Jack Marshak, but actually he would be my number two. Mm-hmm. I latched onto the character in a way that I don't think you did. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's a kind of character. It almost reminds me a little bit of like Varys from Game of Thrones or honest, I mean, honestly, uh, reminds me a little bit of uh, Patrick Bateman. Oh yeah. In that it, it feels like an actor who 
is acting, but in a good way. Yeah. Like there's just something theatrical about Jack. Like I, I would have to guess Chris Wiggins did a fair bit of theater. Right. You know, I kind of like that. It's, I don't know, it's a little bit old school Hollywood, a little bit theatrical, but in a good way, in a way I find interesting. I honestly would have put John D. LeMay, Ryan the Lion, Dalion at the bottom. <laughs> Although I would be, I'll be honest, having having seen a few more episodes and spent some time with him, He's starting to grow on me a bit. And I guess I I guess what I might say about him if I'm being generous is like if you like David Duchovny, mm-hmm. then I think his style of acting and his performance might be your cup of tea, maybe mm-hmm. a little bit more than mine whereas I like the again obviously the bigger theatrical performance of Jack Marshak. I agree with your choice too. I thought he did a nice job. I just I didn't find that whole scene and stuff as enthralling as you did, but... It's not even so much that scene, although admittedly that's <laughs> that's most of where we get Jack. Although I do kind of... I admit his entrance basically breaking in as a shrouded figure and then pulling a sword on uh, who he thinks are two people who've, I guess, broken in. That is kind of a cool, very dramatic entrance and right. you know pretty heroic. The scene that follows... I'm not saying that scene is my favorite. In fact, as I've mentioned, I'm quite distracted by the fact that they don't seem to have lit our lead actress correctly. Yeah. And actually, I mean, that maybe just begs just one final question is, at least when I started watching the show, I guess I always just kind of, you know, Mickey is the first character that we meet. And I guess I never really thought of it as the supernatural so much where the the two main characters kind of share equal footing Mm -hmm. and eventually to some degree even kind of split that. At first, they kind of share that a bit with their father, but then I think, you know, it became Bobby and then eventually um, Castiel. Right. It's like they're always kind of sharing it with at least a third person, if not even a fourth person. And they and as time went on, obviously, they kind of formed a little bit more of an ensemble, whereas, I mean, here we're only looking at one episode. But I don't know. For some reason, I guess I always kind of thought that Mickey, played by Louise Roby, or at the time, I think she simply went by Roby, she was a Canadian, and still is, Canadian pop star and recording artist. Had a recording career and modeling career before she did this. I guess I kind of always thought that she was the focal point. It's her show and that there were other characters, but even that uh, Ryan the Lion was kind of second fiddle to her. But now that I've watched the show, I guess I'm, I'm thinking maybe that interpretation was never exactly correct. Yeah, I'm curious to see how the next episodes unfold in that sense and see who kind of who comes and goes because I, I i've only seen the first episode obviously i'm definitely curious to see as time goes on is the nature of our troika of mickey ryan and jack going to be reshaped or is it going to become more of an ensemble mm-hmm. are they always going to kind of share equal footing so i'm curious to see how that develops just to bring this episode to a close hill street what would you give the inheritance on a scale of august osage county to unstoppable you had to bring up Unstoppable, the greatest movie of all time. I'm going to give it a six. I'm putting it right on par with Vampire Diaries. Your turn. It's a neat premise. There's a lot of creativity. There are some genuinely good performances. Um, There's some great practical effects, or at least some charming practical effects. And uh, so for that reason, I'm going to go ahead and give it three Unstoppables. Uh, <gasps> but due to the compositing effects, uh, the digital stuff, some baffling script choices and just decisions overall, an opening that doesn't really seem to fit tonally, and um, some some strange decisions regarding the relationship between our main characters, etc. I'm going to go ahead and take off two Osage counties for a net rating of only one Unstoppable. I cannot even believe you're using that word. 
in relation to this episode, but I I hear what you're saying, but it's just so offensive. Hey, you know, the show is going to continue to grow and evolve, I'm sure. Maybe next week it'll be five unstoppables. Who's to say? (laughs) Who's to say? Thanks for listening, everyone. We know you have a lot of choices when choosing a Friday the 13th the series podcast, and we sincerely thank you for choosing ours. Real strange Jason didn't show up, but honestly, I respect their decision to hold them back. Special thanks to Joshua Romeo for original music, and to Stephen Yu for original art. If you want to support our show, you can leave a review and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. If you want an occasional update on our projects, you can sign up for our newsletter at the Inner Demon Entertainment website. And if you want to follow us on social media, honestly, we don't like social media. We're not good at social media, but links can be found on our website. Be sure to join us next episode if you want to hear about a haunted quill pen that grants murderous wishes set in a homoerotic monastery that turns the creep factor up to 11. Take care until then. And as we like to say around here, memento mori, remember you will die. Good night, everybody.